0: Today on Golden Girls Sports, the amazing life and career of Estelle Getty, who went from queen's housewife to international superstar, and it only took about 50 years.
1: Marcus Allen, Mike Tyson, extra innings, the tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson, Bobby Old Tampa Bay Bucks, and there off oh, the pig takes the lead. The chicken.
0: And then there was one first aired on January 31st, 1987, the 16th episode of the show's second season. It was written by Russell Marcus and directed by Terry Hughes. Right from the jump the girls find Sophia eating linguine with clam sauce for breakfast. No, she's not losing it. Turns out she's preparing for some high-end athletic competition.
1: Come on now, Ma, what's really going on? You don't usually eat pasta for breakfast. I'm carbohydrate-loading. I signed up for the charity walkathon. thon Oh, Ma, are you nuts? I mean, this is for people who walk a lot. So what do I do, hover? <laughs> Since 1904. Besides, they have a category for people over 80.
0: The other girls are participating in the walkathon too. Well, sort of. Rose, Dorothy, and Blanche will be babysitting the kids of the other walkers. But that's not getting off easy either. Some of these kids are real assholes. Anyway, the walkathon ends, and all the parents return to pick up their kids, except for one. Little Emily's parents can't be found, and she's still at the house. Meanwhile, Sophia returns to tell the girls how she did.
1: Oh, thank God. Emily, pack up your diapers. You're on your way home. Ma, why didn't you use your key? I left it home. I thought it would weigh me down. (laughs) Sophia, how did you do? Great. Easily a personal best. Oh, tell us what happened. It was electric. The starter fired his pistol into the air, and like a shot, I left half my competition in the dust. You were that fast? No, it was the over 80 category. Most of them dropped from fright. (laughs) You're kidding. Please. There's a natural build to these kind of stories. Sorry. So, finally, the race was underway. I start off slow. I'm cagey like a panther. But when the time is right, I pounce. The crowd is on its feet. Sophia, Sophia. (laughs) My heart is pounding in my ears. But then again, it always pounds in my ears. (laughs) I could see the finish line. It was only two, three hundred yards away. And then it happened. What every runner dreads, I hit the wall. Uh, now you ran out of steam. No, I actually hit a wall. They put up a new Wendy's on Collins Avenue. From what they told me, I picked myself up, staggered over the finish line, and collapsed. People are talking the covers of national magazines. Still doing
0: here. As the night goes on, the girls begin to ponder the possibility that they might have an abandoned baby on their hands. Blanche even thinks they should keep Emily because it'll mean a second chance at being the attentive mother she never was for her kids. But forget all that because Sophia is a sports phenomenon, and by the next morning, she's already annoyed at the paparazzi.
1: How are you feeling today, Sophia? My ear hurts. Ma, you were in a walkathon. Why should your ear hurt? From talking on the phone last night to hundreds of well wishes, I'm a sports celebrity. <laughs> Look at that! Be at this hour. Who do you think? The paparazzi. Now I know why Sean Penn gets so ticked off.
0: <laughs> Just then, Emily's father finally shows up. He was at the hospital, where his wife had triplets the night before. He says he called, but the woman who answered wouldn't stop talking about winning the Iron Man triathlon. So while Blanche comes back down to Earth and tries to reconnect with her actual daughter, Janet, Sophia announces her intentions to compete for Team USA in the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. She just needs to borrow 20 bucks from Rose first. Writer Russell Marcus wrote three Golden Girl scripts. And then there was one, Big Daddy's Little Lady, and To Catch a Neighbor, a.k.a. the one with the very young George Clooney as a cop who uses the girls' house for a stakeout. Marcus would later have a career as a producer, working on shows like Married with Children and Parker Lewis Can't Lose. One of the Walkathon thon dads in, And Then There Was One was played by Ray Combs, the former stand-up comedian who would go on to host Family Feud from 1988 to 1994. Before getting that gig, Combs was a warm-up act for sitcoms like The Golden Girls and Amen, and an occasional sitcom and movie character actor. After he was let go from Family Feud, Combs had difficulty getting back into the TV game on a regular basis. Severely in debt, and recently divorced from his wife for the second time, he became suicidal and was hospitalized after twice attempting to take his own life. On June 2nd, 1996, Ray Combs was found dead in a Glendale, California hospital psychiatric ward. He had hanged himself from a noose made from a bed sheet. He was only 40 years old. Walkathons are a pretty new phenomenon, and... If we're being honest, they're more about raising money for charity than actual fitness, which is why they're such a popular way to get whole communities together in the name of charity. They're accessible for all ages, sizes, and body types. The first ever walkathon happened in Puerto Rico in 1953 when actor and comedian Ramon Ortiz Del Rivero, known by his stage name of Diplo, walked 80 miles and raised $85,000 for the Puerto Rican League Against Cancer. The first walkathon in the United States happened about 10 years later, 3,000 people walked 33 miles around Minneapolis in the 1968 International Walk for Development to raise awareness of the American Freedom for Hunger Foundation. A lot of the walkers were children and high schoolers, and they got a boost in profile thanks to Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon, who were in town filming a Tonight Show special and cut a national promo for it. Now, walkathons are pretty common, be they for the March of Dimes, Crop Hunger Walk, or AIDS Walks, which we'll see hold a special place for today's featured Golden Girl. Sophia had only four scenes in, and then there was one, but she obviously makes a memorable impression. And that's a pretty apt metaphor for the career of Estelle Getty, who spent years acting off, 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 off Broadway before becoming a huge star in her 60s. Estelle Getty's path wasn't like those of her co-stars on The Golden Girls. Combined, Betty White, Rue McClanahan, and Bea Arthur had decades and decades of television experience not to mention other starring roles in movies, on stage, and on radio. By contrast, Getty spent a lifetime acting to little attention in out-of-the-way theaters in New York while also performing as a working wife and mother. Her given name was Estelle Schur, and her parents were Polish immigrants who had three kids, Estelle, eldest daughter Rosalind, and son David. Born on July 25, 1923, Getty wasn't the youngest of the Golden Girls, as urban legend would later suggest. But she was over a year younger than her on-screen daughter, B. Arthur. White was the oldest, born five months before Arthur in 1922, and McClanahan was the youngest of them all by a good dozen years. Living in New York's Lower East Side, young Estelle was first introduced to show business by her father, who took the kids to see vaudeville shows and movies at the Academy of Music. Estelle fell in love with performing immediately, which led to singing, dancing, and acting lessons. Those led to appearances on stage in the Yiddish Theater and doing stand-up comedy on the circuit known as the Borscht Belt. Starting around 1920, Jewish families from New York City would vacation at resorts in the Catskill Mountains upstate. The hotels would book music and comedy acts that were also Jewish, many of whom would go on to international fame like Henny Youngman, Woody Allen, and Billy Crystal, just to name a very small few. As a teenager and also working as a waitress, Estelle performed on the Borscht Belt as one of its very, very few female stand-up comedians, gaining the skill at delivering one-liners that would become not just a professional trademark, but a personal one as well. She described her stand-up work as okay and didn't really enjoy making self-deprecating jokes about shopping and such. In 1947, she married Arthur Gettleman, the man who bought her father's auto glass business. The two moved to the Bronx and had two sons, Carl and Barry. In need of a bigger house, the family eventually settled in Bayside, Queens. But domestic life didn't deter Estelle's acting dreams. Even while being a wife and mother and working as a secretary, among other jobs, she went out on tons of auditions and won roles in community theater and shows that were so off-Broadway you needed a satellite picture to find them. She often deferred promotions because she didn't want the extra job responsibilities getting in the way of her acting bug. At one office where she worked, called Snap-Out Forms, she attended auditions while dodging the watchful eyes of her bosses. Quote, At Snap-Out Forms, the first day I came to work, I had an audition, and I said, Can I go to lunch at 10 o'clock? The next day, I had to go someplace else. I said, Can I take my lunch at 2.30? The next day, I asked if I could take my lunch at 11. The office manager said, You have the strangest eating habits of any secretary we've ever had, end quote. It wasn't easy, but Estelle was doing what she loved. Eldest son, Barry Gettleman, once told People magazine, quote, she was a whirlwind as a young mother, working, auditioning, shopping, cleaning, and my mother was a brilliant actress, end quote. At one point, she even helped start a small theater group in Fresh Meadows, Queens. So the roles were there, sort of. But any notion of fame was very, very far away. Through friends, Estelle and Arthur became familiar with the La Mama Theater on St. Mark's Place in Manhattan's Greenwich Village. Soon, Estelle was a frequent patron of plays by one of the experimental theater's young writers named Harvey Firestein. When he needed an actress for his play Flatbush Tosca, Estelle's friends recommended her to Harvey. Although she didn't get the part, this was the beginning of a lifelong friendship between her and Firestein that would bring them both unbelievable fame and success. Firestein had written two one-act plays, and after seeing both shows, Estelle started badgering him, and occasionally hitting him, to write a third one-act play that included a Jewish mother, a part she would also play. Firestein resisted for a while, but then, quote, it began to strike me as funny to imagine this teeny little thing bossing me around, end quote. Eventually, he wrote Widows and Children First, the final part of what he would call his Torch Song trilogy. She was the only one in the cast that had a job. She was still his secretary at that time, and she was the only one in the cast that could afford to buy dinner. She was the only one that had a car. She was the only one who had her home. Um, She's the only one who had a real life. The rest of us were sort of vagabonds. So, So Estelle was like, and it wasn't just an age thing. Estelle was like a grown-up to us, so we had to listen to her. Estelle Gettleman, under her new stage name of Estelle Getty, played the disapproving mother to Firestein's Arnold Beckoff, who lives as a drag queen in an apartment with his lover and a young gay man he plans to adopt as his son. With Torch Song covering Arnold's complicated and tragic love life, the climactic confrontation with his mom was a long time coming. By the time that last scene hit, Stell was able to bring the house to tears with both laughs and emotion, as mother and son finally reach an understanding they can live with. Widows and Children First premiered at La Mama in 1979. By 1981, all of Torch Song Trilogy had moved off-off-Broadway. A year later, it hit Broadway at the Little Theater, which is now known as the Helen Hayes Theater. And within two years' time, Torch Song Trilogy was a coast-to-coast sensation, Harvey Fierstein was a two-time Tony winner and two-time Drama Desk Award winner, and Estelle Getty was about to go from Queen's Housewife to Hollywood Phenomenon. She gained a reputation around New York for her Broadway work, and had already popped up on episodes of Cagney and Lacey and Fantasy Island in the early 80s. But as Torch Song toured Los Angeles in 1984, TV and movie producers started noticing Estelle's performance and bringing her in for auditions. She got some small parts, like a short scene in Tootsie, and playing Cher's mother in the movie Mask, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. But she returned to New York, assuming that Hollywood stardom wasn't in the cards. Her manager told her to try again, and Estelle agreed to go back to California, but only for two months. Turns out, two months would be all she needed. She auditioned three times for the Golden Girls. Even more if you believe her often fanciful book, If I Knew Then What I Know Now, So What? The first time was with casting director Judith Weiner and the second was with producer Tony Thomas, who loved her immediately. Although she kept moving along in the process, Estelle decided she needed to take her game to the next level. Her manager set her up with a makeup artist, and Estelle herself bought clothes from thrift stores, including a medieval-looking bamboo purse. She showed up in full costume for her last audition, and didn't break character the entire time she was in the building. And when she started spouting those zingers from the pilot script, the decision was made. Both Estelle Getty and that one-of-a-kind purse she bought in an L.A. thrift store were the first official cast members of the Golden Girls. Estelle would later write in her memoir that motherly roles were always her bread and butter. Quote, I've played mothers to heroes and mothers to zeros. I've played Irish mothers, Jewish mothers, Italian mothers, Southern mothers, New England mothers, mothers and plays by Neil Simon and Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams. I've played mother to everyone but Attila the Hunt. End quote. Now in her first huge role, she'd play a mother who was 20 years older than she was in real life, and also Italian. Originally, producers were looking for a quote, big fat Italian mama to play the part of Sofia Petrillo, but tiny Estelle, who stood under five feet tall, decided to play the role the best way she knew how, more Brooklyn than Italian. She never forgot her heritage while the show was going on, though and even poked fun at it in one sports-related joke. In season two's The Sisters, written by Christopher Lloyd, Dorothy has a surprise cooked up for Sophia's birthday, a visit from her mom's estranged sister, Angela, played by Nancy Walker. The surprise, of course, goes totally off the rails, but before it can, Sophia has other ideas of what it means to be a good kid.
1: Your birthday's this weekend and you're depressed about being older. No, I'm not, I'm depressed because you give me such lousy birthday presents. <laughs> Ma, you want better presents? Adopt Monty Hall. I wish I could. Jewish sons are the best. They give great gifts, they always call, and you don't have to worry about them getting hurt playing sports.
0: Sadly, the great Monty Hall died while I was researching this episode. May he rest in peace behind doors one, two, and three. Back to Estelle Getty. In an interview with Emmy Legends, Rue McClanahan said of Getty, quote, She kept saying, can't we make these characters Jewish? She would have felt so much more comfortable than trying to be Italian, although it worked, end quote. Damn right it worked. She was so good as a pushy New Yorker that, after years of inspection and binge watching, it kind of makes you wonder about the timeline of Sophia's life. If the show started in 1985 and she was supposed to be 81 years old, then that means Sophia was born in 1904. But some Picture This Sicily stories are set in the early 20s, meaning she was possibly 18 or 20 years old and still living abroad. And yet, she has absolutely no trace of an Italian accent and sounds like a born and bred New Yorker. Kind of like Estelle Getty. Hindsight nitpicking aside, Estelle's performance was dynamite right from the start. From the first table read, she blew everyone away, even in the presence of her veteran co-stars, and legendary director Jay Sandrich. Charles Levin, who played ill-fated houseman Coco, remembers Estelle making her co-stars fall in love with her. Quote, She sandbagged everyone. During the rehearsal, she was insecure. But like the true stage pro she is, when the lights went up, Estelle was on fire. She couldn't miss, and everybody saw it. It wasn't, did you see what Estelle did? It was, oh my god, Estelle is stealing the show out from under three comic pros. And when combined with the sheer power of Beatrice Arthur, who at 5'10 was almost a foot taller than Estelle, Sophia and Dorothy absolutely hit the ground running. For Arthur, what made the pair so memorable was that they were, above all else, relatable. I think the relationship between Dorothy and her mother makes for one of the most brilliant comedic duos I've ever known. First of all, it was so ludicrous, with the fact that physically Estelle and I are so completely different. But then their love-hate relationship, where they could be so sweet, yet so cutting with each other, was so real and just marvelous the way it was written. End quote.
1: I've seen so many really wonderful actors, wonderful actors, who once they're told it's a comedy they're playing, they turn into God knows what. I mean, they're, they're no longer human beings. You know what I mean? They, they go mad. And she was able to simply sustain take her time, and uh, invest in the character
0: that she played. Sophia wasn't meant to be a regular character on the show. But once viewers saw her steal the pilot, she became so popular that writers simply couldn't let her go. NBC eventually realized that children, to their surprise, found Sophia appealing. As seasons stretch on, TV shows sometimes add kids to spice things up. Think of it as the Cousin Oliver paradigm, or maybe the raven Simone gambit. In any event, the Golden Girls didn't need either one, because they had Estelle Getty.
1: She's one of the reasons for the success of the show with young people. I think they get such a kick out of little Estelle telling Big B off and, and B knuckles under her, to her and everything. I think, uh, I think that's part of the success.
0: Beyond telling interviewers her incredible story and seeing her face on magazine covers... Estelle found critical fame, too. She and Betty White were the only two main cast members of the Golden Girls to be nominated for Emmys in all seven seasons. She won the award for Best Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series in 1988, fittingly the same year Arthur won for Best Lead Actress. White and McClanahan had already won Best Lead Actress in two years before. Getty was also the only Golden Girl to win a Golden Globe Award, taking home the trophy for Best Actress in a Television Series, Musical or Comedy, after the show's very first season. During the course of her time on The Golden Girls, she also appeared in a couple of feature films, Mannequin, starring Andrew McCarthy and Kim Cattrall, and the infamous Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, a notorious critical bomb that's currently sitting at 4% on RottenTomatoes.com. Roger Ebert said in his review of it, quote, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot is one of those movies so dim-witted, so utterly lacking in even the smallest morsel of redeeming value that you stare at the screen in stunned disbelief, end quote. In his review at the New York Times, Vincent Canby wrote that the pint-sized Miss Getty is an engaging trooper. But of the movie overall, the material was bottom drawer. By all accounts, the crazy instant fame never went to Getty's head. While her co-stars parked luxury and foreign cars in the studio lot, Estelle puttered to work in a tiny Toyota Tercel. And one incident relating Golden Girls Forever showed that growth as a person coincided with growth in her profile. Remember Nancy Walker, who played Sophia's sister Angela? In addition to her many stage and TV roles, including playing Ida Morgenstern on Rhoda and the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Walker was a huge hit as Madge, and a long-running series of ads for Bounty Paper Tells. The Quicker Picker Upper Years before they played sisters, Getty and Walker had worked together on those commercials. Sort of. Estelle was Walker's stand-in on the set, meaning crew people would set up lights and cameras using unknown Estelle to approximate the height and proper angles for the similarly statured star, Walker. According to a friend of Estelle's, during this time, Walker, quote, never gave her the time of day. She wasn't mean, but she never went out of her way to talk to Estelle. So when Nancy got booked on the Golden Girls, Estelle was excited and started plotting how she was going to go up and say something to her. But then the moment Nancy walked onto the set, and out was Nancy coming to Estelle's show, and Estelle no longer felt the need to bring it up, so she never did. End quote. The cast of the Golden Girls got along famously, literally. From the beginning, the mutual admiration was real and genuine. Whatever disagreements they had were short-lived, and were always trumped by the respect they had for each other and the unbelievably rare platform they were all given on this one-of-a-kind show. But it wasn't all smooth sailing, and in fact, Estelle's time on the Golden Girls was equal parts triumph and sheer terror for her. As Charles Levin said, she was already nervous at the table read for the pilot, which wouldn't be unusual for a more or less unknown actress to be during her first network TV show. She said in an interview with the Washington Post, At my age, it was a shock to my heart. Not only was it terrifying to get this kind of job, It was terrifying to walk into a room with Betty White, N.B. Arthur, and Rue McClanahan. But as the show got bigger and Estelle's star rose, things didn't get any easier. By season two, she was caught in the grips of full blown stage fright and anxiety during the show's Friday tapings. While viewers at home then and now got to see Sophia slinging snappy answers with deadly precision, the act of making those jokes flow so freely was not easy. Director David Steinberg, who worked on the episode Big Daddy's Little Lady in 1986, said that working around Estelle's blocks was the most difficult part of the job. Quote, she dropped all of her punchlines in front of the audience, never getting her lines out right, so all the air went out of the comedy. At first, no one had told me about it, but then the other women clued me in. Estelle was talented beyond belief, and really could give an incredible performance— so what we did was steal her performance during rehearsal earlier that afternoon. I worried that if we waited to pick up her lines after the rest of the taping, she'd be demoralized about not having gotten it right. So we taped the afternoon without the audience and when she was feeling confident and edited it all together, end quote. Arthur, White, and McClanahan were pros, pros who had their lines memorized in time for taping and never ever ad-libbed or flubbed them, which is still found daunting. Harvey Firestein, who had seen her grow exponentially as an actress firsthand, said that the problem was in the often constantly shifting nature of sitcom making, which could be a hard process for any actor, let alone one who had only really been used to stage work. Sitcom scripts are known to be written and rewritten right up until the time of taping, and for a creature of the stage, that was not an optimal way to work. Quote, for an actress like Estelle, in the theater you would learn your lines, and then have them under your belt so you didn't really have to think about them, and then you could really act. But unfortunately, that's not how sitcoms are. And on top of that, Estelle was beginning to have memory issues, and for such an independent woman, that frightened the hell out of her. And then the fear only made the issue worse. End quote. Writer-producer Mark Cherry, who would later go on to create ABC's Desperate Housewives, said that Estelle was the only actress who ever asked for fewer words. Frustrated with having their lines botched or forgotten, the writers tried not to overtax her with long speeches or lots of scenes, meaning some Sicily stories were edited or cut out altogether or taped after the audience had left. Knowing this now and watching the reruns makes you really appreciate the work done by the show's directors and editors who don't seem to get enough credit. The memory issue became such a problem that Estelle began writing her lines on props all around the set. Associate designer Michael Hines said that, quote, Everything in the vicinity of the kitchen table had been graffitied by Estelle. Her writing was everywhere, end quote. And if you moved something she had written on, or wiped it clean, she could get even more panicked. Eventually, she went to cue cards, which irked her more polished castmates who didn't realize how bad the problem was at the time. Despite all of that, the producers knew what they had in Estelle, and whatever extra steps they had to take to get those amazing Sophia performances out of her, they took in part because it meant making a better show, but also because Estelle was a beloved member of the family. The people who worked with her, including her co-stars, all adored her. And when reading the stories of her struggles with anxiety, you really get the sense that they come from a place of love and perhaps sadness. As producer Nina Feinberg-Wass said about Estelle, quote, what should have been the most joyful experience for her, being on the Golden Girls, she was often crippled by, end quote. Even before she moved to L.A. to work on the Golden Girls, Estelle had found a cause that was near and dear to her heart. In the early 1980s, the AIDS crisis exploded into the American consciousness. The epidemic infected approximately 150,000 people per year by the mid-1980s, many of which were gay men who feared for their lives and those of their loved ones. While working on Torch Song Trilogy, Estelle became friends with, and unsurprisingly, a mother figure too, many gay cast and crew members from the show. But starting around 1981, Torch Song actors began getting sick with different ailments. What Harvey Firestein admits was first suspected as just hypochondria became a full-blown epidemic within a few short years. Soon, these young men, whom Estelle had come to view almost as her own kids, were dying right before her eyes. One of them was her own nephew, David Schur whom she supported and helped into hospice care before he passed away from AIDS himself. Estelle did whatever she could to raise money and awareness for the disease wherever she could. The premiere of the film version of Torch Song was Los Angeles' first ever AIDS benefit. And although Anne Bancroft starred in the movie in her original role, Estelle was still there to show her support. Firestein said of his friend in Golden Girls Forever, quote, So Estelle ended up being in the middle of the AIDS epidemic from day one. We were fighting that war very early on. Because this was Estelle's family, these were her kids. She loved them, and seeing them die one by one just destroyed her, end quote. She called AIDS, quote, her most important cause at the AIDS Project Los Angeles White Party in 1987. She told an interviewer in 1989 that, quote, The majority of my friends are gay, I don't deny that, and a lot of my friends have died from AIDS, end quote. Estelle also said in a TV interview that she would not tell a joke if she considered it gay bashing. During her time living in Los Angeles, her husband Arthur remained on the East Coast. This might seem like an unusual arrangement for two people who had been married for 40-plus years, but that was how they wanted it. He didn't enjoy the life and frequent nightlife of a Hollywood actress, and she wasn't about to become a homebody. At her apartment in L.A., Estelle constantly hosted young gay men who she counted as her closest friends. Still, Getty may have had very progressive views on homosexuality, but Sophia Petrillo, not so much. Sophia was hardly homophobic, and she once proclaimed she'd rather live with a lesbian than a cat, unless a lesbian sheds, but she wasn't above a little stereotyping either. In two episodes, that stereotyping manifested itself in sports-related jokes. Season 6's Mrs. George Devereux written by Richard Vassie and Tracy Gamble is an episode-long dream sequence in which Blanche imagines that her late husband has returned to her. Sophia walks in on Dorothy comforting Blanche about her emotional fantasy and, well, jumps to some conclusions.
1: I told you I heard voices in here and... Oh, God, it's Dorothy. I tell you, she takes one tennis lesson.
0: In that same dream, Blanche imagines that Dorothy is caught in a love triangle between her, Wonder Woman, and Carol Burnett show regular Lyle Wagoner and singer, songwriter, actor, businessman, politician, and furry vest enthusiast Sonny Bono. It is a weird episode, but it's also a funny one, and Vassie and Gamble both cited as their favorite of all the scripts they wrote for the show. Sophia made a similar joke in the show's final episode, Season 7's One Flew Out of the Cuckoo's Nest, Part 2. Dorothy is set to marry Blanche's uncle Lucas, played by the legendary Leslie Nielsen. What started out as a practical joke at Blanche's expense blossoms into real love between the two, and Sophia couldn't be happier. Naturally, she shows that happiness in the most off-putting way possible by hiding with the camera and taking pictures of them kissing. The first time, she snaps a picture of Dorothy and Lucas, The second time, she catches Blanche and Rose in a hug as they realize that their lives are about to change forever.
1: Oh, I'm gonna miss you, honey. Oh, Oh, I'm I'm gonna gonna miss miss you. (laughs) I just love to watch you. Whoa! (laughs) What is this, Wimbledon?
0: There's a lot that can be said about those final episodes, and we'll get to them another time. There's even more that can be said about the history and stereotyping of lesbian tennis players throughout the sport's long history. But let's stay recent because, unbelievably, it's still going on. In May of 2017, Australian Margaret Court, one of the most decorated female tennis players of all time, said that lesbians had ruined the sport and were brainwashing little girls into being gay through tennis. This was all news to Martina Navratilova, an even greater tennis player than Court, and who, along with fellow champion Billie Jean King, was one of the first publicly out pro athletes ever. Navratilova wrote a scathing open letter in the Sydney Morning Herald, blasting Court's dangerous bigoted views and asking for the Margaret Court Sports Arena to have its name changed to the Yvonne Gulagong Arena in honor of the Australian tennis champion of the 1970s, who faced discrimination for being born an Aborigine. Court responded to Navratilova by restating her claims and throwing some crazy conspiracy theories on top of them. We'll see what that tennis arena is named at the next Australian Open. When the Golden Girls ended in 1992, Sophia moved into the Golden Palace along with Blanche and Rose. Her job at the hotel was chef, which sometimes put her at odds with Chewy, the incumbent cook already on staff played by Cheech Marin.
1: I think she really had more fun in Golden Palace than she had in Golden Girls. I saw a weight lift off her shoulders when we went into Golden Palace, and I think she truly enjoyed every week of that.
0: After that show ended, Sophia returned to Shady Pines. But she got out on occasion and stopped by other shows, including multiple episodes of Golden Girls spinoff Empty Nest, that show's spin off, Nurses, and for one episode, Blossom. Estelle's post golden acting credits are pretty sparse. She did a couple of episodes of Mad About You, Touched by an Angel, and The Nanny, and did some voice work on Duckman, Harvey Firestein's The Sissy Duckling, and the first Stuart Little movie. She reunited with White and McClanahan on two separate shows once on an episode of The John Larroquette Show in 1996 and again on White's short-lived CBS show Ladies' Man in 2000. Around that time, Getty had been diagnosed with what doctors thought was Parkinson's disease and osteoporosis. Later, they thought it was Alzheimer's. What it really was was Lewy body dementia, a neurodegenerative disorder like Alzheimer's, but characterized by protein deposits within the body. The lady known for her razor-sharp wit both on camera and off couldn't remember people, and was described as being, quote, like a curtain wafting in and out by Betty White. On July 22, 2008, 84-year-old Estelle Getty passed away, having already been robbed of much of the bright light she had brought to everyone who knew her or even just knew of her. There was a bit of controversy following her death, as all three of her co-stars didn't attend her funeral. B. Arthur found the loss too much to bear, and McClanahan had recently had hip surgery. As White later explained, all of the other girls took her passing very hard, but had seen Getty during the last years of her life, when they could properly celebrate their friendship. I remember seeing an HBO documentary on the life and career of director Stanley Kubrick. Lots of other great filmmakers were interviewed for it, and Martin Scorsese said something to the effect of, people will wish Kubrick had made more movies, but really, what we have is enough that small list of just 13 feature films gives us plenty to think about and enjoy and analyze forever. I feel similarly about Estelle Getty. Unless you were a frequent goer of tiny theaters in Queens in the 60s and 70s, the amount of time you spent enjoying her performances was relatively small and came about late in her life. But those 180 Golden Girls episodes of Sophia Petrillo, plus a few other appearances, are just enough for us to laugh and marvel at for all time. She put everything she could into that role, even when fear and age tried to stop her. Estelle Getty created not just a great TV character, but an icon for elderly people or anyone that's ever known a wise old person who was still sharp as a tack. Just do a YouTube search for Sophia Golden Girls to see some of the most savage put-downs ever delivered on film, all done by a lady who looks like your grandma. She also fought to get help for people who needed it as they were dying and being shunned, and was a role model for never giving up on your dreams. It might take 50 years, but it can be done. At Lighthouse Hockey, the Islanders' blog I write for and edit, we also lost someone we cared about to dementia when Hall of Fame coach Al Arbor passed away in 2015. We sell t-shirts through the site, and all the proceeds go to the Center for Dementia Research in Orangeburg, New York, in the name of the coach. If you'd like to donate to the CDR, You can support them at their website, cdr.rfmh.org. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we'll check out some references to good old-fashioned cardiovascular activity. I'm already tired just thinking about them. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlssportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening.